You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Today's guest is Hillary Canavy. Hillary is a licensed professional counselor, facilitator, educator, TEDx speaker, writer, and activist. She and Dana Sturdivant are creators of the Body Trust Way of Healing and co-founders of the Center for Body Trust and co-authors of the book, Reclaiming Body Trust, A Path to Healing and Liberation. Today, I sat down with Hillary to discuss her new book, and together we broke down the three-part pathway to connecting with and cultivating more body trust in your life. I am thrilled and honored to have the opportunity to share this conversation with all of you today. Hi, Hillary. How are you? Oh, I'm so good. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, today was one of those days though. I woke up, I had therapy. I, oh, <laughs> yeah, so I put a lot of muscle into my emotional life this morning. It's been a big day already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been looking forward to talking to you. I'm so excited. Me too. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to dig into this for everyone listening. Hillary just co-authored an amazing book called Reclaiming Body Trust. And Hillary, first of all, congratulations on that. That's a big endeavor. How do you yes. feel? I feel great now that it's in the world. I wasn't sure how I would feel about it being in the world, but it's been really fun to see it in people's hands and see it in bookstores, of course, but also see people resonating with it. You know, it's a really like narrative-based book. And so there's a lot to connect to in there and like stories that we don't hear often enough about people's lives and relationships with their bodies and food. And so to have that do what we'd hoped it would do, which is like, you know, help people feel like their experiences make sense has been really rewarding. That's so amazing and exciting. I feel like writing a book feels like climbing a huge mountain, like a major feat energetically and mentally. And so how do you feel now that it's complete? I'm so glad it's complete. I'm also so glad we got to do it. My co-author is Dana Sturdivant and we've been co-conspirators, business partners for 17 years. And so this book is kind of like all the things we've been learning about and saying and thinking for a long time. And so getting to put that all down was really important to us, you know, like Mm -hmm. to be able to share it more widely, but also the process of figuring out what to put in and what not to put in and how to stick to like the truest stuff and not add a whole bunch of other stuff, you know, was really hard. So 
I'm kind of excited also now that this book exists and that it's all in there that I can think about new things again. Yes. Yeah. Sounds like it was years and years in the making. I was surprised. I was like, she's got to have written a book before this. Is there a book before this? But this is the original body. book. So very exciting. Yes. We've written like lots of courses and curriculums and like things like that, but not a book. So. Mm -hmm. And as far as feedback has been clearly, I'm just very intrigued by this whole book writing thing with feedback, any surprises from readers and surprises? People are just loving it. Like we've had all really great reviews so far. I'm sure that won't last forever, but like it's been out in the world for three weeks and nothing but five stars, which I'm so surprised and excited about. And also I got to read the audiobook mm-hmm. and record it myself. And <laughs> people seem to really like my voice. And you know, like, I'm sure you know, like listening to your own voice is an odd experience. So to have everyone feel really like soothed by my voice and is really an exciting thing. I had no idea it would be that way. Oh, that's, that's really flattering. And I think, um, it's nice to hear that. And maybe everyone will be soothed by your voice today in this interview. I hope so. I will do my best. (laughs) I only like to listen to my voice on 1.5 speed. Oh, that's interesting. I haven't played with that. Yeah. Play with it. Mess around with that someday. You like, and you'll be like, my voice sounds better at 1.5. Oh, that's so funny. Okay. (laughs) Anyway. So let's dive into the basics first. What is body trust? I know that's a loaded question, but. Oh, it's a big question. And, you know, Dana and I have been commenting a lot lately because we've been talking about it more lately about how it'd be so nice to have like a very succinct elevator speech kind of thing for what body trust is, but that wouldn't really do it justice. Right. And so body trust, the way we developed it is a way of healing from living in a world that is fat phobic and that in which we all hustle in response to weight stigma. And it's an acknowledgement that a lot of the ways our bodies are interacted with in the dominant culture is harmful to us. You know, there's a lot of erasure of lived experience. There's a lot of erasure of all that we do and the name of pursuing belonging, Mm. you know? So that could be dieting and weight loss. It could be the way our eating disorders and disordered eating have developed. And so we want body trust to be a conversation that's about healing, but we also don't want to leave out the context in which all of this has impacted us and why it's so hard to heal in this culture in particular. Mm. Yes. I read in your book that body image is kind of a sticky situation because it puts onus on the individual and healing body images. There's a lot of emphasis on what you can do to heal your body image. And you do a really great job reminding everyone that a huge part of your healing of body image is looking at the world around us and the environment we grew up in and the oppressions that we've, you know, lived with, if any, and how that's been impacting on your perception of self. Yeah, exactly. Like I think body image is such a tough concept, even in eating disorder treatment. I think we want it to be like this thing that we all naturally do. And of course it's a regular part of the conversation and healing, but among eating disorder providers, body image 
is really complicated because nobody knows if they're doing it right. And mm-hmm. it tends to get passed from provider to provider. And I think it's because there's some parts of it, like having an elephant in the room, like, you know, it's in the room, but we don't talk about it enough. Like lots of the body image workbooks and stuff out there can be helpful around some basic concepts, like understanding some body diversity or understanding like how the media and ideas of beauty have impacted us, but it really doesn't talk to body image itself. Doesn't tend to speak to the fact that we live in a world that continues to be oppressive, that we are going to continue to face body-based oppressions and fat phobia, Mm -hmm. even if we've worked really hard on healing, that we're not going to feel good in our bodies every day. And that really what we want to work on, what we believe is more helpful is working on body acceptance and body liberation, Mm -hmm. because we think we found that those concepts don't leave out anybody of any size. Mm -hmm. And they acknowledge that you're going to get triggered and hurt living in this culture, experiencing like fat jokes and things like that. And you're not going to like your body every day. But what we don't want is for dieting or food restriction or exercise to be your only tool in the tool belt for dealing with the shame that comes up. Uh, mm. You know, we want you to say like, I am not the problem here. This is all the problem. Like you said, to heal is not on me. It's on the culture. Mm-hmm. I am surviving in a sick culture. Mm. Yes. So that is part of why it's so hard to, I guess, learn or grasp living with that sense of body trust because yes. there's a lot propped up against the individual living in this environment. Yeah. And, you know, it's not fair to ask individuals to change and then let corporations and all these things continue to make money off of our body shame. Right. And, you know, we want an acknowledgement that we have to keep surviving in this culture and that we have choices about how to do that, but that it's not anyone's fault that they're struggling in the ways that they are and that the ways you've coped have been rooted in wisdom but they probably were coping mechanisms that could last you forever. Right. Exactly. Yes. I know what you mean. And mm-hmm. now I find one thing that I love is that you mentioned that body trust is not really like a destination that you can arrive to, but you're continuously working towards. Mm-hmm. And it's even described as like this connective energy that you can cultivate. Yeah. Could you speak more to that a little mm-hmm. bit, how someone might cultivate that or start to in this? I mean, it's very complex. <laughs> it is, but I think one metaphor we lean into a bit is this idea of like a sapling or a new tree. And when you're, you know, when you plant a fresh new tree, its roots aren't very strong. So if a big gust of like fat phobia or body shame comes along, it tends to get knocked over. And we find that if we're practicing things that are in the spirit of believing that we belong, that bodies are diverse, that our coping has been rooted in wisdom, that it's not our fault that we've struggled, when we start to dig into really understanding our body story, not the one handed to us by the culture, but what has been our truest experience of what happened and how we learned to occupy our body and our families and in this world. If we allow ourselves to grieve the things that we don't get to have by, you know, in the idealized body, if we start 
to call out fat phobia and diet culture a bit more. If we really immerse ourselves in understanding, you know, like health at every size or anti-diet approaches. And if we find some community that is absolutely dedicated to being anti-diet, then our roots get deeper and deeper into the soil. And so that's kind of what we're cultivating is not a community of people who are perfectly healed in some mystical way, right? But a community of people that are dedicated to a better world for all bodies. I mean, that's the vision, right? Mm -hmm. Like we could end this in a generation with some serious divestment from things. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that all eating disorders wouldn't exist because of course that's not all about the culture, right? Mm -hmm. But we could end the way, you know, even my 10 year old who's been raised in a like very body accepting anti-diet environment yesterday was like, my mom had a yard sale and he picked up some weights from it and she let him take them home. And like, we've never talked about any of this. Of course he has access to like the internet and things like that, but He was like, oh, I ate an extra sweet today. So I'm going to do a few more reps. And I was like, oh, where did this come from? You know what I mean? Like it just shows up. And I was like, oh, honey, it's not math. You know, we're not doing math when we think about like how we take care of ourselves. But, oh, you know, it's so escape this. What a story too. It's just, Uh it shows, you know, you can do everything within your own you know, world limited home or whatever to create this body acceptance, anti-diet body trust environment. And then the real world is always going to come in. It's always there. I mean, we don't even call foods like sweets or not. Like we don't, you know, it's wild. It was wild to witness. So it reminds me of how much this has influenced us, maybe in ways that we can't fully name or articulate or know is in Yeah. I always think about that too, because I had an eating disorder and I grew up in a very loving home. And Mm -hmm. I hear so many stories of individuals who had moms who were dieting and body shaming them. That wasn't my story. So I was always very confused. Like, how did I end up with an eating disorder if, you know, I wasn't criticized? And then you realize there were so many other factors and Uh messages from school and peers and the media that took in, you know, came into my brain and made me think, you know, and yeah, it's just, yeah, it gave you a way of coping yeah. and yeah. And being in the world. Yep. I mean, there is a lot of gender and body-based oppressions that we experience that are deemed normal because they're so common, but mm-hmm. yeah, affect us, still harm us, you know? So true. Yeah. So <laughs> I have so many questions, but one thing I also love that is something I've been wanting to articulate. And then I read it in your book and I was like, aha, this, this Mm -hmm. we need to talk about. And that is the idea that body trust is reciprocal. Yeah. The entire idea, you know, people think I need to trust my body, but then there's also my body needs to trust me. Yeah. Right. And I was curious if you have any ways people can start thinking and behaving more in that way, because that was a huge shift for me when I was regaining my own body trust and my own intuitive nature with food and all of that. 
Hey guys, just a gentle reminder here that the doors to the Recovery Collective are now open until October 1st. So if you've been looking for the perfect addition to your eating disorder recovery journey, the Recovery Collective is the place for you. Join me and 80 other members as we work towards healing together. Yeah. You know, our bodies are always taking cues from us, right? So one thing we say a lot in eating disorder or disordered eating world is like your body doesn't know that you're dieting, right? Your body thinks that you're walking through a desert without food or going through a famine, right? So your body's always responding to what's happening and what it has access to, what it needs and doesn't get, you know, whatever. So this is the way we started to talk about body trust being reciprocal, which is that you're learning to trust that your body has not been the enemy this whole time, right? That your body's acted accordingly to what was available and what was happening to it. And at the same time, because your body's always protecting you and always trying to think up ahead, you know, it's done some things in response to what it hasn't been offered, right? Mm -hmm. It's shut down hunger signals, maybe, Mm -hmm. right? It's shut down even reproductive energies for some of us, right? And mechanisms. It makes it feel like, you know, you can ignore signals and it'll go quiet. Like it's a very accommodating vessel for the most part. right? And so to get your body back in conversation with you, it needs to know that you're committed to it. You know, that it, and the way we build trust with something is by small, consistent acts over time. You know, just like if you were in a relationship where you lost trust with someone, you know, it wouldn't be like a grand gesture. Oh, I trust you now right? It would be small, consistent acts over time, emphasis on the consistent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we're returning to food or returning to presence in ourselves, you know, we tend to benefit most from doing that with some consistency, not to be good, not to do it right, Mm. but to say, I'm here. Mm -hmm. same way we want that from everyone in our lives, right? Mm -hmm. That's how I know those with eating disorders often just consistently feeding yourself is a way of teaching your body that it can trust you again. Yeah, that's right. I love the idea of thinking about your body in that way. Just thinking that it wants to trust you again and it's just a matter of showing it that it's safe to do so. Mm -hmm. It's really powerful. Yeah, it really is. And we'll do this with other entities, right? We'll do this with people. We'll do this with dogs we adopt or cats we adopt, you know? We'll do this with (laughs) squirrels in our yard. We'll do, you know, whatever. That's so fun to think about. I sometimes will talk about this and the idea of like having a pet, like yeah, the pet will trust you over time to feed it, right? I don't know. There's a lot. It's a good metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that this path to body trust, there's Mm -hmm. three parts that are really well outlined in the book. That's really the structure of the book is rupture, reckoning, and reclamation. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through what that looks like. Yeah. You know, we see healing as a process, right? And that we don't get out of the process 
you know, like we can't choose what healing is going to look like. We have to kind of walk through some hard bits, right. To get to the other side. So we started to think about what we'd experienced with people in our offices, you know, over and over again. And these are the words that came. And so the rupture first is an exploration with how body trust was ruptured in the first place. So not what you did wrong, but like, how did you lose trust with your body? You know, and when did that happen? And what were the factors involved in that? And what is the story you tell about that? And how accurate is that story to your lived experience? Like we often tell a story about what happened through everything we did wrong instead of all these factors that made us have to make certain choices to survive. Mm -hmm. And we want to tell the truest story, which is a story of survival, typically. So that's the rupture is when we really kind of get in there and try to figure out what ruptured my relationship with my body. Mm -hmm. And it's probably a long list of things for most of us. I have a quick question about that. Mm -hmm. When you are talking to people who are sharing their experiences, do you notice that there's a gap between the truth of what really happened and then the narrative that they've been telling themselves their whole life? And are there any narratives that seem to be taken on collectively that aren't true? Ooh, that's a good question. (laughs) Yes, I do notice themes. A lot of the themes have to do with the way we've come to talk about larger bodies and fatness in our culture. Interesting. Okay. You know, because we've been told a story about what it means to live in a larger body and how that happened and what people can do about it and what they're not doing enough of. And so that story, I think, permeates all of our stories, whether we've lived in a larger body or not, Mm -hmm. is like, there's always something more we can be doing. Mm -hmm. There's always something that we haven't done enough of. And, you know, we've got this bootstrapping rhetoric or this personal responsibility rhetoric that permeates most of our stories about health Mm -hmm. and well-being. And so all of that is like, there's always something I should have done, but didn't do. And so then our personal stories get told often through our critic. Interesting. Yeah. You know, or with a strong contribution from the critic Mm -hmm. and the critic is also falling back on that learned experience of personal responsibility and is like, oh yeah, you know, I have clients that are like, if I was just born differently, this wouldn't have happened. And yes, yes. Okay. And how can there be any blame in that? Mm -hmm. But there is. You know what I mean? Yeah, you don't even have control over when you're born, who you're born to, where you're born. And they're still finding a way to place the blame on themselves statement. But capitalism and neoliberal culture absolutely rely on us thinking everything that comes our way in our life or happens in our lives is our fault. Mm. And that denies the fact that we live in systems that are supported by ideas of hierarchy and who's worthy and who's not worthy and who has access to certain things like money, health, education, all those things and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. And all of that gets ignored if we keep telling a story through only a personal responsibility lens. Mm -hmm. So part of that rupture is filling in that gap. So shifting from, I take the blame on why I'm here to there's so much more to this story that I've been unaware of, essentially. That's right. Mm. 
Exactly. Mm-hmm. And the aim of our work mm-hmm. is to, you know, take the problem focus out of the individual's body and put it back on the culture where it responds. That does not mean that we don't have our own work to do or that we don't have things to take responsibility for or that we aren't left with, you know, all that we had to do to survive and all that we have to do to heal from that. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that somehow our humanity is flawed because Mm -hmm. we've struggled and survived in the ways that we have. Yeah. Mm Mm, it's such a powerful realization just to start looking on a more macro level in this way because it builds that self-compassion that seems to be missing. Yeah, and it's super needed. Yeah, and you know, one thing we know is a huge phenomenon in our work is that everybody wants body trust stuff for everybody else, but not for themselves, right? Which is such a hallmark of this phenomenon. <laughs> called out half the listeners of this. Uh. Well, yeah, I mean, I really relate to that too at times. You know, we have all these body trust providers we've trained and, you know, they struggle with that too. You know, we're all struggling with that mm-hmm. because the ways we've been taught to relate to ourselves is around our worthiness and our productivity and what we achieve and what we don't achieve. Mm. Yeah. Oh, tell me about it. Right. <laughs> so let's move on to reckoning. Okay. Yeah. I'm so curious about this piece too. So we think of reckoning as kind of the messy middle, like the part we all want to skip, but don't get to, you know, like (laughs) somebody said, we want to build a bridge between the rupture and reclamation. And the truth is if we built a bridge, we'd miss all the stuff that we need to do. There's no ease and that sucks, but it is the way it is. Right. Yeah. Um, So the reckoning is where we reckon with like all that's happened, having a ruptured relationship with our body and the pieces that we need to return to or get on board in order to really be able to reclaim ourselves as whole. Mm. So some of us, that just means like, I'm going to reckon with the fact that I'm an eater and I don't want to be. Oh, (laughs) right. Yeah. (laughs) I want to run marathons, but that is not good for me, Mm -hmm. you know, or my mom is never going to get me and my relationship with my body. Like that is not something I can keep hustling for or like, I am going to live in a fat body. That is my truth. And fat bodies exist just like thin bodies. And that's a fine thing. And I have to reckon with that. And it's painful. Hmm. You know, it's not wrong. It is painful to get used to. So like, those are some of examples of what we do. And the reckoning, like it sucks, you know, we've practiced hustling so much that we think we prefer it to peace Mm -hmm. and that sucks Mm -hmm. because we don't like what peace means about us. But the only reason we believe that some of like being thin is better than being fat is because we've been sold that idea over and over again. It's not because it's actually true. Mm. Yeah, the reckoning feels really painful when you put it that like Yeah, sorry about that. It's true. Whole acceptance piece that you've been kind of resisting your whole life. <laughs> yeah, it's grief work mostly around accepting the things that I've tried to get away from. Accepting the things about my humanity that are human. Yeah. Instead of trying to constantly improve that situation. One thing that's coming to mind is when I have clients who are obviously working on recovery and they finally 
reckon with this eating disorder isn't really helping me anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's hard. Yeah. I remember talking to someone who had been an alcoholic and had gone through recovery for alcohol. And, you know, she was reckoning with like, how do I make a salad at night without a glass of wine? Mm-hmm. Who am I when I make that salad? You know, and I don't mean a salad is a good thing. I just mean that's the example she used. Food. Yeah, food. Thank you. Just a food example. It's just a food example. How do I make a chocolate cake without alcohol? You know, same thing. Insert, you know, how do I make a chocolate cake without counting calories or mm-hmm. without obsessing over, you know, what I want to do at the gym later or beating myself up? It's like, how do I just do that thing? Yeah without the eating disorder piece or whatever you're struggling with. That's right. Mm, mm. So reckoning, that's a big one. Would you say that takes a while? Like which one of these steps is the hard? Is reckoning the hardest step you'd say? I think reckoning is the hardest. I think the rupture is like, oh, you know, it's kind of got this like, oh, vibe. And then reckoning has like a, ooh, vibe. (laughs) Well, and then reclamation has like a, Okay, I can do that. Okay. I'm doing this. You know, I think that's more of the vibe. I think I'm really selling this. Yeah, you're really selling this as a feel-good book. <laughs> yeah. But you know, people who have struggled with eating disorders are the ones in our culture who know that we don't recover into feeling good all the time. Mm-hmm. That yeah. is not recovery. And none of us feel good all the time. Yeah. You that's can't live in the world and have that experience. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely a dream that you have to reckon with too. Once you're recovered, you're still on a continuous healing path in so many other ways, and yeah, connecting to emotions of you know all across the spectrum of emotions. That's still a part of life. Yes. Mm. Exactly. And there's a reason to do this. That isn't just about like I can't have an eating disorder anymore. The reason to do this is because you get to heal, but also we are healing a lot around us when we choose body acceptance. Oh, it changes everything. Mm -hmm. It changes the world for bodies. It would change the world for my 10 year old, apparently, you know, like it would change the world. So what do you mean by that? Can you dive deeper into it? I know what you're, what you're saying that there's a healing power in your own acceptance, but what does that look like? Well. I think that when we start to have people, especially people with the most body privilege who are saying, who are pushing back on medical systems, who are pushing back on schools that are teaching crap that we don't want to teach to kids that are saying, I belong. I audaciously believe that I belong and you can't take that from me. Hmm. Then what we're doing is creating conditions to expand this definition of who deserves love, who deserves acceptance, and who deserves belonging. And Sonia Renee Taylor talks, who's the author of The Body is Not an Apology, talks a great deal about this. Like this idea of like, we can't put a ceiling on love and we shouldn't put a ceiling on acceptance, but body hierarchies do that right now. We say, I can accept a body like this, but I'm a little iffy about accepting a body that shows up like this, right? This is the work of love. This is the work of saying, I'm going to accept myself 
and know that the trickle effect of accepting myself is that I will be more accepting and the people around me will be confronted with acceptance. Mm -hmm. That's really powerful. I love that mindset because as someone who likes to help, and I know there are a lot of people who listen to this, who want to help other people and make the world. Yeah. Right. It really makes it more accessible. Like you're more motivated to accept your body, recognizing that you can actually have that ripple effect and your own body acceptance has the power to inspire other body acceptance. That's right. Safety and comfort. Yeah. And the people I've known who struggle the most with disordered eating are often the most loving and generous people Mm -hmm. around, you know, who struggle with their own relationship to themselves, but there are reasons to heal beyond our own bodies. I think that's enough first personally, but there's a lot of reasons to do this work and it's not happening in a vacuum. Yeah. Yeah. Really hoping there are people who latch onto that idea because it's so true and powerful. You mentioned people with the most body privilege working Mm -hmm. to accept that. Is that where the trickle effect starts? You would say. I don't know that it starts there. I think you go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I'm just curious. You mentioned I clearly was reading this book, like leading up to this interview, but we want to push beyond the edges of what we accept as an acceptable body. What I guess I'm trying to get at is there is that pushing beyond what you see is acceptable. We need that. And, you know, honestly, these movements around body acceptance and body liberation have always been led by marginalized people. They've always been led by fat folks and gay folks and queer folks and black folks and brown folks, because it's absolutely necessary, right? There's not a day where you can wake up and not be one of those things, right? Whereas those of us who have struggled around, who have a lot of privilege, who are white or white passing and, you know, feel like we can somehow mitigate body-based oppression by just losing weight. So, but we need to stop doing that. Yes. Okay. I see what you're saying. You know what I mean? Because if we keep acting like that's inconsequential and all these other people who experience, you know, as a white person, like I don't experience any marginalization Mm -hmm. in comparison to what people experience just walking outside their home or sending their kids to school or driving, trying to drive their car somewhere. Yeah. And that's the kind of stuff where, you know, we need to turn our focus away from not acquiescing to oppression. Mm, yes. But saying we won't put up with this, not for us or anyone else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Really helpful to think about it in that way as well. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like the last chapter of the book is called Making Your Healing Bigger Than You. Mm. And really the whole book is about that in some ways, but really like this is purposeful. We wouldn't be the enormity of suffering around bodies and body size if it wouldn't, wasn't going to change how so many things work in our culture. Yeah. Well, I don't want to speak in any sweeping statements, but there is so much that can be healed if we could all work together in accepting all bodies. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And why not? Right. (laughs) Why not? You know, I think that's the most important question is like, what, what's, why wouldn't we, why wouldn't we, (laughs) what's the point? Okay. Fascinating. So when you said reclamation has like a, okay, vibe, I feel like reclamation is like, woo, in my opinion, it just sounds very, 
it's it's like where we play with healing. It's like where we play with liberation and what liberation is going to be for us. Like my experience of liberation may not be anyone else's experience, but it's where we start to practice our freedom and where we test out kind of what we've learned. We will no longer tolerate what we don't want to do anymore. And so reclamation is where we're like, okay, I am interested in pleasure for myself. I'm interested in pleasure being a part of my everyday or an everyday part of my focus. You know, I'm interested in telling other people about what I've learned or telling people what my new boundaries are about what they can and cannot talk to me about or what they can, cannot expect of me. You know, it is a place where we reclaim we may reclaim, some people choose to reclaim movement as a celebration or as an experience of embodiment instead of something that we're doing to our bodies and we're doing it for and with our bodies, right? Mm-hmm. And so reclamation is an area of practice. And one thing, one ethic we hold in body trust work is that we do see minus work. Like we don't get A's in body trust, right? We're going for a C minus in everything. So we're going for a C minus in healing, going for a C minus in liberation. We're going for a C minus in pleasure. We're going all the stuff like, you know, diet culture, dominant culture has taught us so much about trying to do everything so perfectly well. And it keeps us tied up in that hustle and it keeps us close to shame. Like, right. Perfectionism. I think as Brene Brown says, rides like side saddle or something to shame. Right. And so we need to find ways to get perfection out. And that's a big part of reclamation too. Mm. Is is reclamation driving this (laughs) or what can I let go of? Okay. I always use that great analogy too, because I am a big fan of this whole C minus mindset. Oh, um, good. Yeah. My recovery taught me sometimes messy is better. Sometimes. Oh, absolutely. You know, almost always it's the more livable experience. And so reclamation, like how would someone hijack that into perfectionism? Like what can that look like versus what should it really be? Yeah. I think a lot of times it can sound like, well, I don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Or if I have a bad day, it means that I screwed everything up. Mm. You know, if I have a relapse moment, it mm. means that I've messed everything up and have to go back to the beginning. Okay. You know, C minus might mean that like you're working, you know, body acceptance and you're trying not to get triggered by your changing body. And that's happening most of the time, but not all of the time. Mm -hmm. that's kind of the vibe of it for us. And a phrase we use a lot is like most of the time, but not all of the time. That's such a nice phrase to have. It just feels so compassionate. It is. I mean, I think, yeah, we all go come at these things with a lot of expectations and rarely can we meet our own expectations. Uh Yeah. So it's like, I like it if I meet my expectations or my hopes or my wishes some of the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can live with that. Mm-hmm. So reclamation sounds like there's a lot of boundary work in there. Mm-hmm. There's what else were you saying? There's Nest- communication, there's community, you know, there's like deciding who gets to be how close to you in your new awarenesses and in your body in a changed form, perhaps that might be true for some of us, not all of us. And like, who can support you? living more shame-free. Mm. 
-hmm. you know, so some of it is like, what are my practices that allow me to not have to be constantly shame triggered all the time? Okay. Yes. Mm. So that can be a big part of it. And then a big part of it is pleasure. Like we are big advocates of the idea of joy and pleasure Mm -hmm. and that regardless of what the world is throwing at us, we have, we should have access to joy and pleasure and that pleasure isn't suspect. You know, I think a lot of living this culture means that if like we're approaching something that's pleasurable, we're immediately doing some kind of weird math about like how much of that we should get. And I don't mean just with food, even though we do that a lot with food, but like how much joy and pleasure should I have this weekend? Cause I have such a to-do list or like, you know, I think the other piece is that like joy and pleasure are found in the moment and we kind of have to be in the moment to notice they're happening. Mm-hmm. And so if it's all a calculation, it's taking us pretty far out of our body in the moment. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you brought up pleasure. I think there's so many listeners who have difficulty with giving themselves permission yeah. to pleasure and sink into that or be in that feeling of pleasure. And how would you say pleasure supports healing? I think pleasure makes healing worthwhile. Mm -hmm. I would say rarely do people feel healed if pleasure hasn't come back. I think pleasure is one of the reasons we're alive. And, you know, one of my favorite teachers around ideas of pleasure is Adrienne Marie Brown, who wrote a book called Pleasure Activism. Mm -hmm. And she said, what if our healing was the most pleasurable thing we do? What if our liberation is the most pleasurable thing we do? And I'm like, that is so wild and so far out of my cultural training, but like, let me sit with that question the rest of my life. Yeah. I agree with you there because it's almost like you have to say recovery is hard. It's going to be the hardest thing you ever do. And what if we asked that question and sat with it? What if it's the most pleasurable experience of your life? Yeah. I mean, what if getting to know yourself deeply, what if honoring your truth and being able to tell the truest story, you know, what if coming home to yourself despite the pain is also one of the most wonderful things that happens, mm-hmm. you know, cause we aren't meant to feel one way all of the time. We feel a million ways throughout the day, but pleasure is one we have to notice and allow in order to feel, mm-hmm. you know, shame just kind of happens because we're used to it and anxiety and maybe anger. But if we don't allow pleasure, if we don't allow joy, it's not going to happen. Yes. It's such a helpful reminder. There's so Mm -hmm. much, especially in mental health healing work, there's so much feeling the anger, feeling the shame, processing all of those things. There's not as much of an emphasis on allowing yourself to feel the pleasure, feel the joy. People sometimes assume that comes naturally, but it doesn't for so many people. Especially if it's been shut down, you know, and our culture is very suspect of it. Yeah. What is with that? It's probably a real long story about patriarchy and power and stuff, but yeah. Yeah. Podcast for another time. Indeed. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Hillary, for joining me today. Before I let you go, I was just wondering if you could share, I don't know, any final thoughts about body trust that are on your mind before I let you go? Yeah. Mm. I guess I've said it a few times, but I always want to say it again, which is that your suffering has not been your fault. I'm very certain of that. And in body trust, we aim to show you how. And 
that your coping has been rooted in wisdom. It makes sense that you've coped in the ways that you have in your life, but that doesn't mean it's a life sentence to do that. And there's other options available. And the body trust is a community-based adventure experience, you know? So we really invite you to come and check us out. Instagram is where we hang out the most. Center for Body Trust is the name of our business. But we have a lot of wonderful people that are practicing and doing this work. And you are not alone. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that, Hillary. And you shared a little bit about where everyone can find you. Is there anything else you want to share or promote before I say goodbye? Yeah. Thanks for the offer. You know, we have courses for people working on healing their relationship with food and body. And we also do a lot of training for healthcare professionals and coaches and healers of different types who want to work from this perspective. So that's always available to you on our site. And finally, because this podcast is coming out before we're there, we're going to be at Cropalo in Massachusetts for an in-person retreat after all this time of not being able to do in-person stuff. We're doing our first in-person retreat and that is in the beginning of November. So registration's open for that. If anyone wanted to come hang out with us for a few days at Cropalo. Oh, very exciting. Yeah. Fun. I did a retreat this year with my co-founder of the Recovery Collective, and it's really exciting to just do in-person work. It and... feels so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I've heard about Kripalu, and I need to look that up because it's starting to pop up as like the center that I'm hearing whisper. Yeah. yeah. Dana and I have each done a lot of our own work there. It's not perfect. There's a lot of healthism and things there, but yeah that we are more than happy to be invited to share our work there. Beautiful. Okay, Hillary. Well, thank you so much again. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and I appreciate your words and wisdom and knowledge that you could share today. Thanks so much for having me and having this conversation. Awesome. Awesome. 